Hello and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. If it sounds a little bit different today, that's because it is. I'm driving. Yes, I'm holding a microphone, sitting in traffic, and people next to me are looking at me like I'm kind of crazy. Why am I doing this, do you ask? I'm not going to lie. I'm insanely busy. Sometimes I have to multitask. Actually, not sometimes, pretty much all the time. Because uh, as a lot of people in independent music do, they do way too many things. Yeah, sometimes time is at a premium. And if I'm able to do two things at once, then so be it. But that's not why you came here. You came here to listen to an interview. And that interview today is with Daniel Wanacott from the band Finch. Now, I'm sure some of you are just like, Yo, Finch? Like, there's still a band? What? What's happening? Finch was absolutely massive in the late 90s, early 2000s in the Southern California scene, but I mean, nationwide as well. They just captured this really interesting moment in aggressive music, if you will, where, you know, they took everything that Glassjaw was doing and they made it extremely poppy and they made it their own version of it. This guest idea came from an email exchange I had with somebody where they were like, hey, I think uh, someone from Finch would be interesting. And then I started to look around and, you know, I always kind of pick who I would define as the most, uh, could provide the most interesting interview. And then um, I, I looked and I was like, there's not much information about Finch out there. Like, they don't do very many interviews. They're not that horribly interested in speaking very much about their own personal lives. Like, across the board from each individual member, like you get nuggets where it's like, yeah, they came from the desert and yeah, they're these people that did this thing, but there isn't much contextual evidence. So anyways, I had no idea how to get a hold of them. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll, I'll tell you all about that in a minute. Let's get some business niceties out of the way. Visit 100wordspodcast.com. On the right side of the page, you'll be able to do three things I would love for you to do. One, donate to the show. This thing doesn't pay for itself. It doesn't take an incredible uh, amount of, of resources and time for me to do this. It does. I said it doesn't, but no, it does. You know, just, just pony it up a little bit. That's all I'm saying. Sign up for our email newsletter. I try to send it out once a week. I realized last week I screwed up. I didn't do that, and I apologize. But you get, uh, you know, more, uh, more context, more conversation points for this person that I had on the show. And then plus, I give you a preview of who's coming up the following week. And then uh, the third thing is email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And that way we, we can become friends. It's pretty interesting how the correspondences I have with people over email sometimes turn into really weird and interesting things. Like sometimes business relationships, sometimes advice columns. <laughs> I, and I love the relationship that I form with pretty much everybody that emails me and is willing to kind of have an honest and open discussion. Anyways, business nice nice tease out of the way. So like I said, I, I didn't know where to go in regards to reaching out to Finch. So uh, I knew they were on a record label called Razor and Tie. And they've been extremely kind to me in the past as far as hooking me up with their artists. And uh, that's what they did. And they were like, hey, how about you speak to uh, Daniel, the guitarist? He's kind of doing the most interviews. So again, couldn't really do much research. I knew very little about him besides the fact that his cousin is the singer. And that was kind of it. So um, I, I always hate going into conversations like completely blind where I don't have a personal relationship and I have very few strings to pull on. But it was such a good conversation. I loved it because I could tell that he was engaged and listening. And uh, we just talked about a bunch of cool stuff. No better way of describing it than just letting you listen to the conversation unfold. So here is my chat with Daniel from Finch, and I will talk to you afterwards. 
Interjection as far as like Finch in general, because you you joined the band around 2007, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I mean, my first memory was uh, was more so around the uh, it was probably 2000 2001. Whenever what it is to burn came out, I've played in bands and I was involved in the the hardcore and punk scene in Southern California for quite some time. And then I, at the time, I was working at an independent record store, and I remember us all of a sudden starting to sell a lot of Finch. Yeah, and I was like what i was like this is weird like what i honestly i just hadn't seen finch playing like a lot of shows in the southern california area what it is to burn came out obviously the ep prior to that but then what it is to burn came out and i loved the record i went to see finch without you (laughs) at house of blues anaheim it just blew my mind because i was like it seemed like finch existed in some sort of weird vacuum where the band had arrived and all of a sudden it was like holy shit these guys are like the biggest thing of all time they were like that back then. I was probably at that Anaheim show. Right. I, I was going to say, I was like, I, I'm sure you can you can offer an interesting perspective seeing the fact that you've obviously been with the band for you know many years now, but you weren't a part of it then. And I'm sure you were kind of uh, attuned to what the band was doing at the time, but uh, it did seem weird. Like, uh, did they exist in some vacuum where it was like all of a sudden they had kind of fully arrived? Yeah. I mean, all of us, all of us did. Uh, I grew up with those guys. We all went to school together. Nate, the singer, is my cousin. We grew up playing music and writing music together and i watched them go from a regular old garage band to basically a headlining national act that really put on a great show you know almost overnight the funny thing about it is city we grew up in in temecula is such a suburban wasteland there there's no scene you know what i mean there's no there's no contemporaries there's there's nothing to measure things by we would we we all had to drive a couple hours to go see shows when we were kids there was nothing going on in our town, nowhere to play, nothing to do. I think it's just a testament, really, to you know a group of fairly motivated guys that wanted to get the hell out of their little suburban town. They figured out a way to do it. You know, I, I definitely see exactly where you're coming from because playing in bands in from Orange County, it was one of those things where it's like anytime we kind of went outside, where it's like whatever we play the showcase in Corona or we play, yeah, especially like Temecula definitely seemed like another world where it was like, yeah, you, you're right. There was no shows, there was no places to play except like a you know a skating rink or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for every every summer there was some someone that tried to throw shows somewhere at a skate rink or a community park or whatever and there was always one good show and then stuff got shut down and bands never had an opportunity to do anything and you know these guys figured out how to do it i mean looking back you realize that it's because they wrote a bunch of great songs that really is what made it happen but you know they didn't get the education that a lot of like new york hardcore bands got you know la bands get where you you grow up watching, mm-hmm. you know, maybe your older brother was in a band or the guy down the street had a great band or, you know, whatever, a great punk rock venue around the corner that's got a lot of history. I mean, we didn't have any of that. There's obviously, I, I mean, I can definitely attribute my own liking of the band as far as just being like, okay, listening to, you know, what it is to burn. And I focus on that just because it was such a, um, this is how I described it to people who were interested in the band, but didn't want to buy the record from me yeah. at the record store. I was like, hey, you like Glassjaw? Okay, this is a more accessible version of Glassjaw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, basically, I mean, I know all about the record and how it was made and everything over the years, hanging out with the dudes and watching it happen when it was happening and you know they literally just sat down and wrote the record that they wanted to listen to you know what i mean it wasn't it wasn't we want to be like 
glass jaw we want to be. I mean, I think they felt like they were making a Smashing Pumpkins record or a Deftones record. It's just, it just came out a little different. You know what I mean? And that's what you get when, you know, there's not a lot of contemporaries around to, to watch. You know what I mean? You get something that's a little bit, you know, a little bit unique. You know what I mean? And I think that that's, I think that that record in particular has, has really held up, you know, and it's because yeah. it's the songs, you know, they're great songs. Yeah. Oh no, for sure. You yourself, you were uh, were you born and born and raised in Temecula, or or did you end up there via other uh, instances? Well, I was born in Long Beach, and then uh, my parents moved to Temecula when I was in uh, first or second grade, and they bought a little deli down in Old Town Temecula, and um, we went to we started going to school in Temecula, and you know that's that's how we ended up there. So basically, I was I was raised there yeah what was your family structure like do you have brothers and sisters and what were your uh were both your parents working at the deli yeah yeah my both my parents work there and i have one older brother and uh, my cousin nate has an older brother matt and we would all just hang out at the deli after school and go run around town and eventually we all got guitars and a right. drum set and we all kind of figured out how to play instruments you know we we had our own little band when we were like 11 years old just learning nirvana songs and guns and roses songs and all kinds of stuff you know it's cute it's a very like sort of uh norman rockwellian uh <laughs> existence you guys had where it was like you know all the cousins are hanging out with each other and then yeah they start to play in a band and like it's very uh it's charming it's, it's, yeah it's kind of funny it is and so who who is the first one of you to kind of start to uh to bring the 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 heavier edge or the more independent edge to uh everybody else to be like yo you need to check out this nirvana record or whatever it was <laughs> well there was a uh, my next door neighbor growing up um his name was Travis. He had an older brother. I forget his name now. I think it was like AJ or something like that. His older brother, he was like 16 and we were, you know, 11 or 12 or something. And you'd walk into his room. This was probably about 89, 91, something around there. And uh, yeah, because we were all about 10, 11 years old. So was, yeah, probably like right around 1990. You'd walk into his room and it was typical teenager suburban mecca of like, you know, posters on the wall. All Guns N' Roses, James Addiction, Rat, Warrant, everything. You know what I mean? And as a little kid, you walk into a you know an older teenager's room and you see all these, you know, it was all out of Hit Parader, right? Mm-hmm. The old old Hit Parade magazine. And uh and he got us he really got us into heavy music. So what we would do is, you know, when he was out with his friends, we'd go dub all of his cassette tapes. Nice. Yeah. So we we really got on, you know, dubbing cassettes and um, passing them around school and you know other other people at school would start to get into heavy music and then i think the first real record that grabbed me um someone gave me a chili peppers record i think it was uh Diley, i guess probably you know we'd walk down to the warehouse and we would buy a lot of cassette tapes you get them in the used bin you know right. for a buck 99 or something like that you'd save your lunch money and go down and buy a record instead you know so <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I love that. Uh, com- I mean, common uh, experience that people have when they do like go into, you know, an older sibling or, or like you said, older teenagers room where yeah. it's like you look at everything and you're just like, what's that? What's that? What's that? Yeah, yeah. And there's no, you know, to me, there was no like, oh, this this band's good or this band's bad or, you know, I had no way of telling whether Rat or Warrant was any better than Dead Kennedys or 
yeah. you know, anything else, it just all looked dangerous. You know what I mean? Yeah. It all looked cool as hell, you know? So it all, uh, I, I love obviously the, the genrelessness that happens when you're a kid, you're just like, all oh, this is part of the same pot, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's something mom and dad don't like. So <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's two categories of music. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and so then, uh, so what kind of teenager did you find yourself being like when you were going through uh, high school and obviously started to, you know, uh, experiment with music and stuff like that? Were you uh, kind of the uh, the introverted kid or were you the one that was, uh, you know, playing sports, but then also had this uh, had this mu- musician side to yourself? Well, I grew up, um, my mom was a golf pro. So I grew up playing golf. And uh, that's that's incredible. I I think there's like, 10 of us that are out there that played golf. Like I, that's ju- junior PJ was like what I did in my life. Yeah, as me well. too. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, I went to the am- junior world and I was a scratch golfer when I was 12, probably. Dude, I was, so, yeah. so cool. Yeah. So what, what did your, so did your, uh, your mom actually play on the tour? Yeah. Uh, before she had, uh, me and my brother, she played a little bit on the tour Nice. and, uh, Be- then she was a teaching you, before group. you guys, before you guys ruined her life. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's how it goes. <laughs> that's incredible so you were you were fully focused on golf yeah yeah and uh you know music at the same time so i was the kid that was showing up to golf practice in high school with liberty spikes and mascara on and i was full fully punk rock and golfed out you know trying to play golf at the same time and i still play golf once in a while you know it's fun uh Mm I'm teaching my son how to play golf right now, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how we grew up. I was, I was a kid, you know, we used to dye our hair with Kool-Aid and go to the thrift store and get army jackets and, you know, and to be as punk rock as you can in a little suburban, suburban town where there's nothing, you know? Right, right. <clears throat> I definitely always, you know, tell me if you identified with this. I always liked the sort of duality of, of things that you could do like you when you you know using golf because like golf could is like literally the most unpunk thing you can think of. yeah 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 and so it's like you had this world that you could live in where it was like dude i could be kind of like the like you like you were alluding to where it's like the punk rock golfer like i could be this sort of anti-establishment yeah. guy that's like you know not not your not your mom's way to play the game yeah. or whatever yeah yeah but the, but then there was this world obviously you lived in where you were dyeing your hair as well and identified with that yeah i mean at, at that age you know from like 11 to 14 or 15 or whatever it's like you can't really do any wrong my parents were really supportive of everything that we wanted to do it's like they didn't mind that we were making a bunch of noise in the garage and playing music and you know they you know when they could afford to they'd help us buy a guitar or a drum set or whatever or make us work for it and you know they loved it all they were very supportive parents and it's for there was a nice little window there i guess in life where it was like yeah man i could i could play golf and have my friends and play video games and be in a band and do whatever right. and none of it mattered and then you know when you get to high school there's much more clear dividing lines as far as what's cool and what's not and <laughs> <laughs> yeah no definitely um, so for, for all intent and purposes, like the, uh, the, the music that you were making with, uh, Nate and your other, uh, you know, cousins and what have you, um, did you guys actually form, uh, a, a band? Like is Fincher like, f- I guess for lack of a better term, like first real band or were there other ones that you obviously had that you, you know, played a few shows here and there with? No, I, I was in a band called uh, beta factor for a long time while Finch was coming up and actually had a demo deal. Finch actually took us on tour in 2004. So I've got a long history with the dudes and um, it's uh, it's just funny to think of myself in the band. 
You know what I mean? Even after all this time, I, I feel like it's definitely my band, but sometimes I, I look back on it and it's like, wow, how did I end up here? It's weird. <clears throat> well, yeah, no, you definitely have an interesting perspective where it's like you, you, you came into the band when obviously the quote unquote commercial appeal had sort of worn off where it's like, yeah. oh, okay, we're not, we're not going to make a million dollars off this band. So intentions of you playing weren't from like the, oh dude, I can't wait to like cash in on this. It was just like, no, I'm playing with my cousin. Again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, it was way more, it's always been about playing a good show or, or writing a great song or whatever. And, and to the guy's credit, you know, all the guys in Finch, um, all past members, everybody. It's like no one was ever a re- very careerist about Finch. You know what I mean? No one was really mm-hmm. chasing the money or anything. I think they, the music definitely came from a, a fairly honest and genuine place and a desire to just play. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> the band's body of work, I think, is a testament to that because it's not like it's not like you the band did themselves any favors. No, no, e- certainly each, not. Each, each subsequent release from like the, all right, let's try to capitalize on the momentum. It's just like, no, man, we're going to make a really challenging record. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's both the blessing and the curse of being in a band like Finch. It's like, fine, 10 or 15 years later that you, you have a, a big group of fans that get it and respect uh, your body of work and things that the band has done. Um, and then you, you know, you see other peer bands of yours that are much more careerist minded and did capitalize and there's nothing wrong with that you know what i mean i'm not talking Mm -hmm. shit on that but it's just not how the story of finch went you know what i mean it's just for better or worse that's not what happened you know that's the reality that you guys lived in rather than yeah exactly you know exactly yeah because who knows if obviously if you uh, if the band existed in the you know whatever Los Angeles area, not the you know cultural void that you guys lived yeah. in, you could have been you could have been influenced in so many different other ways. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And so then, so then as you started to go through high school, and obviously you know you were watching um, Finch start to to formulate and stuff like that. And so was your first band? You, you said uh, I'm sorry, it was Beta, Beta Factor was what the band Beta was Factor. called. Yeah. And so that I, I remember you guys' name kicking around, but I was that kind of for all intent and purposes, uh, sort of your your first band that you started to play out with. Yeah, yeah, we um, we made a couple independent records and did some independent touring. We did some a bunch of DIY West Coast touring. Bought our own van, printed our own merch, the whole deal. Eventually, we got uh, a demo deal with Capitol Records, actually. And I mm-hmm. uh, came under the wing of a guy named Lauren Israel, who's a he was a director of A and R there, and he he taught us a lot of he taught us a lot about the business, good and bad. You know what I mean? Eventually, what happened is we went and made a record that was supposed to get submitted to Capitol for you know consideration, probably be released under one of their indies. You know, I think that was two thousand two, three, and they laid off fucking everybody at Capitol, and I think Lauren lost his job, and a bunch of people moved on. And we got lost in the shuffle, and eventually the band broke up. So, with with your experience with that, um, uh, uh, it, it is one of those things where it's like because you guys, I mean, most bands that kind of fall under the sort of demo deal wing, your experience is unfortunately more common than uh, the oh, other. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you didn't get soured by that. Yeah. <clears throat> yes and no. It, it it's hard. You don't really have any expectations at that point. You know what I mean? You feel like you're mm-hmm. young enough at that point. I was 21. You know, maybe. 22 and you feel like there's just another opportunity around the corner you know what i mean you're naive enough still at that age to feel like well i'll just start another band or do it again in a different way and it'll be fine lo and behold that's not how it works 
right. <laughs> yeah, it's not as easy as that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, for better or worse at that age, that's that's how you think. You know what I mean? It's like, well, that band didn't work out and we got screwed on this deal, put in five years of work with a band and it and, you know, the industry takes a shit on you and, well, we'll just start another one, you know? Did you have any uh, ideas of, were you going to college? Like, did you have other sort of career aspirations or was music what you wanted to solely focus well, on? I was going to community college and had <clears throat> plans to go to art school. Um, and then I got married and then I started doing video production. So I was doing a lot of video production, doing doing oh, local okay. commercials and, you know, just independent projects and educational mm-hmm. stuff and just stuff to pay the bills, you know, and sure. I had a nice little video production company for a while. And, and then Finch broke up in 2004, or took a hiatus and mm-hmm. uh, Nate and I started a, a band at that point called Cosmonaut. And we wrote songs and played a couple shows and tried to make something happen. And then that didn't really go anywhere for one reason or another. And then at that point, Finch came calling and they asked uh, me and Drew who was the drummer in Cosmonaut, to be the rhythm section for the reunited Finch. So we took the gig. It was great. Something I also find interesting, and honestly one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you in particular, Finch is weird. Like, I, I, And I know that sounds like a very general blanket statement, but it's like the the band, generally speaking, I mean, you guys do interviews, but it's like, you know, you generally kind of hit on a lot of the topics like we were joking about before I was recording of like, I'm not going to talk to you about how sick the new record is. Where yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, the band, for all intent and purposes, like, I don't feel like the band is a personality. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. Yeah. But, like, you, you guys seem solely focused on, like, I wouldn't even say deflecting, like, personal narratives about each member of the band. But just, like, really, like, yo, we're, we're about the music. Like, yeah, there's other components of us as individuals that comprise this. In a long way of asking, you guys are very mysterious. <laughs> and I, I presume there's some intentionality in regards to... Um, just the way that you you present that aspect of it or is it just like by, by a byproduct of who you are as people? I think it's more of a byproduct of who we are as people and it's kind of I guess over the years become our MO. I think I think everyone kind of understands that about our band and a big part of that is the attention that the guys got so early on and so quick. I think they realized that that they don't want to have their life out there and have everyone know their personal business right off the bat. I mean, those dudes were so young when they got signed and, you know, they had a gold record by the time they were freaking 20 years old, you know, you know, that's a lot of pressure for young songwriters. And, and I don't think there was a lot of intentionality in what they were doing. I think, I mean, obviously they were working hard at what they were doing, but I don't think anyone started Finch with the aspirations of being the biggest band in the world. I think they just wanted to play great music, you know. And so over the course of the years, it's like that's just become, you know, how we how we do things. And I don't think there's a lot of, you know, premeditated, hey, we're not going to, you know, do in-depth interviews or we're not going to do a round of, you know, a concept record that has costumes involved and makeup. And, you know, I mean, it's like that's just not it's just not us it's like if we did that i don't think that we'd be able to look at each other straight on stage you know what i mean so yeah i mean i think it's probably way more of a byproduct of the individuals in the band that more than anything else yeah i i definitely think i think you're, you're you're right in that estimation and i think 
it's something I've always noticed too. I mean, granted, it's it's been a while since I've actually watched you guys perform live, but you know, the the times that I was watching the band, um, you know, in in the early early to mid two thousands before the hiatus happened, Nate always for sure seemed like the reluctant frontman. He was the guy that could obviously sing and scream and deliver what the band wanted to, but it was just like by default he's the singer, as opposed to like, dude, I can't wait to get up on stage and just like be the star. Yeah, I don't think he ever. I don't think he ever um, bodied that that role that I think a lot of people assume a lead singer should embody. You know, it's funny. I you know, to me, Nate is the you know he's one of the greatest singers out there. He's he's pretty amazing. He's got a, he's pretty humble about it. You know what I mean? I don't think he's in it for his ego or anything else. Um, I think he, as cheesy as it sounds, it's like I, I think he loves what he does and he's that's enough for him. You know what I mean? It's enough. Yeah. It's enough to be able to walk out on stage and play songs. I don't think he necessarily feels the need to go any further. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying, where it's like there definitely is that that presumption of uh, the vocalist of any band to be uh, a the most outgoing, b the most gregarious, you know, c the leader of the band. Yeah, yeah. And it's like yeah. if you don't if you don't hit every tick mark as a singer, uh, that's when people start to go like, yo, what's wrong with that? Dude? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's like, and that's to- and that honestly, that's like kind of the um, the 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 lore, for lack of a better term, around Finch, where it's just like, yeah, Nate's kind of a weird guy. Like he's kind of he's kind of to himself, you know. Um, but that's that's and, just and him. I mean, for us, it's like, I mean, I understand maybe that's how the audience use it, or it gets turned around a little bit, you know, from the other angle. But for us, it's just like it's it's just him. That's how he is in his personal life. That's. That's how he is on stage, you know what I mean? By by extension, this is how he's going to be <laughs> on the yeah, stage. Yeah, exactly. Your own personal experience in regards to, you know, once you started to, you know, once you're asked to join Finch and obviously be a part of that, like you said, there was that weird notion of just like, oh, like, I guess I'm just playing with my cousin again. And like, you were able to take the knowledge that you had of the band, you know, intimately because you were kind of on the sidelines. Was there any sort of um, like expectations that you placed on yourself of being like, oh man, I hope, uh, I hope that them asking me was a good decision and I'm not going to screw this up. Oh, uh, no. I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've been great friends with those guys um, since the beginning. So it felt very natural to join the band. And I mean, the only thing was is I had to learn, you know, two albums worth of material in like two months to play a reunion show. I mean, it was, it was a lot of work. It felt very natural. I was to be in a room with Nate and the other guys playing music. It felt pretty normal. You know what I mean? So... Mm-hmm. And I think by extension for them to do a member change and have me come along, I think it felt just as comfortable for them that they didn't have to get to know someone different. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Obviously, as you, you started to become more ingrained, you know, directly within the band and you started to, you know, know how they work, obviously, from like a business perspective and kind of, you know, know the inner workings of a band. Did you did you notice any of the, I guess, for lack of a better term, like lingering scars that the band had just because obviously they had been, you know, kind of tossed around within the music industry and more so from the business side than obviously the creative output? Did you uh, did you notice any of those things where it's like, oh, dude, we're not going to do that again? Like that was an awful decision or whatever. I mean, a little bit here and there, but I mean, for the most part, those dudes like care pretty much about putting on a good show and writing a good song. Business decisions come and go. Good tours happen. Bad tours happen. Good shows, bad shows. They they wear their scars pretty, pretty well. You know what I mean? I don't, you mm-hmm. know, not too many bitter cases in our band. You know what I mean? I think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of great, you know, I think people are grateful. 
you know, they're grateful for the opportunity that the band has given them in their personal lives. And it's a pretty humble group of dudes, to be honest, you know, and yeah. uh, that was kind of fun for me to walk into. I wasn't walking into a group of prima donnas or something, you know, and, you know, getting, sure. getting, sh- you know, shit on for a couple of years and having to go through any sort of like hazing process or anything like that. So, right, right. you know. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of lingering shit going on with the band. I mean, I think they felt good about where they were. I that the issues that they had with some of the other members and just what they what they had done. I think the hiatus had taken care of a lot of that. I think at that point in their career, they just needed some time off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think if they they look back on it, I I I imagine most of the guys would say we shouldn't have called it a hiatus. We should have just taken a year off, you know what I mean, and spend a year at home and 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 regrouped later, you know. Well, yeah, there's de- there's definitely that pressure that bands feel once you kind of step on the treadmill of like I got to keep feeding the meter <laughs> in order to like in order to keep the success of whatever it is that we're doing, uh, you know, alive. Because obviously, it's like every outsider from like the record label to management to whoever, whoever is you know making income off the band. When the band is like, "Yo, we're gonna take a year and a half off," everyone's like, "Whoa, whoa, pump the brakes!" Like, we're not gonna see money from you for a year and a half. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there was some of that that played into it. You know, you mentioned you mentioned you're married. It sounds like you got married at a quote unquote relatively earlier age um, than than most people would. Have. Yeah. Did you, how old were you when you got married? Uh, I was 22. That's that's relatively young in the sort of independent music. Yeah, scope of things. yeah, definitely, definitely. I don't really know anyone else that got married that young. I've, you know, we were high school sweethearts, and we just decided to get married. It was. You know, and we're still together. So you're doing something right, dude. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. You know, you'd like to think so. <laughs> Do one thing right with your life, anyway. So I always find it strange. I mean, I, I myself, I've been married now. I'm 34, and I've been married since I was 24. And it's like it is weird. Yeah. When I now, it's like I, I'm seeing so many of my friends either just getting married or uh, just starting to think about having kids. And I'm yeah. like, I mean, I only have I only have one child, yeah. but it, it's it is weird because you feel like you're like. Dude, did I do that? Was I like super head of the curve on this? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it definitely changes your life in, in in a way when, especially when you look at your friend groups and everything. It's like, you know, you take on responsibility earlier. Or you have different things that you worry about. You know, we had a kid when we were twenty five, twenty six. Okay, yeah, um, and we only have one. You know, it definitely changes the way that you look at life and changes the way that you process opportunities and the way you conduct yourself and uh you know and almost all my friends you know they're off doing their thing and not getting married and not having kids and so it is what it is but you know i guess when you when you get to your 30s it's like everyone ends up somewhere with a life partner or you know getting married or having kids or getting divorced you know something you know yeah there's there's got to be some life changes. yeah 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 <laughs> with with finch in particular you um haven't had to like grind it out in the sense of obviously you're not getting in the van 300 days out of the year and having to really um focus on the development stage of that band i'm sure a lot of that is is awesome because you obviously don't have to um you know be away from your family and be away from a lot of these other things that happen in life. And I presume that the band is set up now to where it's like you guys basically only kind of do what you want to do rather than having to, you know, like we were talking about earlier, like feed the meter, so to speak. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of that. I mean, there's, there's still when we decide to do the band, cause it, you know, it stops and starts <laughs> over the years. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, when I joined in 2007, we did a lot of touring for three years, tried to write a third record and it didn't work out. And then we took another hiatus and then we got back together for the 10 year stuff. So I mean, it's been, it's definitely been an up and down road, but when we're, when the band is on and we're working, we take the opportunities that we need to take. You know what I mean? It's like, no one makes money off of record sales anymore. It's like, you have to go out and you got to play the shows and you got to make your money that way and sell your merch and stuff. I mean, you know, it'd be nice to only do one tour a year and, and, and make the money that you want to make, but that just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? You got to, mm-hmm. you got to tour a lot more than, than you think you have to, you know, and you know, we have good shows and bad shows and good shows, good tours and bad tours. You know, sometimes we come home from a tour and it's like, well, we got to hit the road again in a couple months, you know? So, right. you know, it's still a blue collar, you know, type working band, you know? no one's selling a million records anymore. You know what I mean? And no one's making that kind of money, at least not in the rock world. Mm-hmm. So you're still having to go out to work for it, for sure. For all intent and purposes, you, you the members of Finch, like th- this is your full-time thing as far as like you guys are, are doing the band from, you know, a, a, a not only a full-time like writing and creative process, but obviously from a, a business sense of the term as well. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely our uh, our focus. I mean, everyone does their little side gigs and makes money on the side and has other mm-hmm. life aspirations and things. And, you know, but that's that's how the music business is now. You know what I mean? Yeah. No one's <laughs> no, one, no one's going to pay your way anymore. So you're not gonna, yeah. you're not going to get a half a million dollar record advance and be able to take a couple years to make a record and. You know, you're not going to find a deal and go buy a house. It just doesn't work that way anymore. You know, last thing I want to hit on before I let you go was the um, putting Finch into a, a musical corner as far as like trying to describe what the band does is like is next to impossible because like li- I there are very few bands where you can kind of like look at every single record as like a marked departure. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like you you guys have you guys have had this sort of like, you know, cut and burn approach for every single record. Through that you're able to filter out the people who are just into like a song or two of yours rather than the band as a whole. Yeah. Um, you know, where it stands right now in in the in the current state of Finch, like you know, who are the people that you kind of see at the shows that have sort of like, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, like weathered the storm and followed you guys? Is it is it, uh, you know, people that you see from the earliest days or is it people that you see that have got into you in uh, later or subsequent records? I think there's a healthy batch from every record, if that makes any sense. It's like there's there's a bunch of diehard What It Is To Burn fans that still come out to shows and a real healthy amount of Say Hello To Sunshine fans. And then we have... <clears throat> a nice group of people that, you know, found the band through their older brother or something like that. And they're like, Oh yeah, we love all the records. And it's definitely a nice mix of, you know, people our age down, you know what I mean? Where, Mm -hmm. you know, we have, you know, kids, you know, 13, 14 year old kids that come and say, it's my first time seeing the band and it's great. And we've been listening to your records and this is my first chance to see you guys and blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of, it's kind of cool to see that we're not running and a very active scene. You know what I mean? The scene has changed a lot. Punk rock and right. hardcore has changed so much um, that, you know, it's it's hard for us to look at the music that we make and look at the way that people describe it and to see any sort of connection. It's like people call it post-hardcore and screamo and all these label genres. and And it's like, that doesn't make any sense to any of us because when we, when we, when we were on tour and you see what hardcore bands are doing now and what punk bands are doing now it it definitely doesn't sound like us and that's not a knock on them it's just there's there's just a big difference there you know i feel like we're a little bit outside of all that and doing our own thing and i think that that's that's a big reason why 
um, we were able to keep a fan base. I think that people that are willing to go on that ride with us, I think that it's rewarding for them, for music fans. And, you know, back when I was listening to bands, it didn't matter what a record sounded like. You know what I mean? When Alice in Chains released an acoustic album, it's like, no one talks shit on it. It's like, yeah, hey, there's a bunch of great songs. Cool. You know, it's like, I don't know. It just didn't, people didn't, didn't discriminate as much back then. Yes. Or maybe yeah. it's just in my little world. I don't know. No, I, I, I can see what you're saying. And it definitely, it's like, e- even, you know, at the peak of waves in uh, Finch's career, as far as like, you know, when, when it was easy to tag the band, you know, Screamo and it's all, oh, they're part of the drive through generation. And like, this is what they're doing. If Finch had a choice in the matter, as far as the bands they toured with, it was always the weird ass bands. It was always like, dude, like, okay, that's a, that's clearly a Finch choice. Like, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that, and, I mean, and it's it's you know even pointed to obviously the tours that you guys do now, where it's like if you are doing your own headlining thing, the bands that are on your bills are bands that either a don't sound like you, yeah. <laughs> or 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 b there's a friendship connection there. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. You, basically, it's like you guys are just such a a weird uh, thing that has been like uh, sort of shoehorned into a lot of these different um scenes yeah. just because of of by default that's what the the sounds were yeah. but you guys never fully i guess wore that coat well i feel like it's, uh it's pretty telling of where we came from or where the band came from and and where we are now it's like we kind of started as the suburban outsider band and i don't think that that i mean we weren't connected to a scene when the band started and i i mean i feel like we're going to end up not connected to a scene whenever we end. And it's like, I think we're proud of that independent streak in the band. And I think that, you know, you made mention of, you know, kind of a cut and burn policy with each record. It's funny. We don't think about it that way. It's like, if we're going to sit down to write a record, it's like, no one talks about like what they want it to sound like. You know what I mean? No one talks about like any uh, motivations as far as, Hey, we want to make a electronic record or we want to make like a, a math rock record or we want to make like a a pretty alt rock record it's like no we just like whatever is happening that year or that month when we're writing and it feels good when we're playing it that's what ends up on the record you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i think it's more of a testament to the five fairly strong personalities in the band that no one's no one's really willing to accept anything that isn't you know, really, really good to our ears. And I think if, you know, if they would have tried to write what it is a burn number two right after that record, I I don't think they would have been happy with it. And when we sat down to write Back to Oblivion, you know, no one was talking about, hey, should we do what it is to burn number two or say hello to sunshine number two? It wasn't about that at all. It was like, what kind of band are we now? You know what I mean? What feels good to us now? You know? Yeah. What really gets what, what, our blood pumping now, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. So then what with that being said, like if you were to self-identify the role that you fill in the band, like cuz obviously there uh there are definitely different uh, you know, common tropes that happen within the band where it's like, okay, that guy's like using a random example yeah. of a band like Thrice, where it's like a band like Thrice, you can kind of clearly see where it's like, okay, the drummer Riley is super into heavy stuff, so it's like most of the heavy stuff you hear in Thrice probably originated from him. And yeah. like, okay, the electronic stuff is is Tepe and whatever. Yeah, like yeah. you could kind of go down the line. Um, so what sort of uh, 
what sort of role do you find you yourself kind of filling? And then if there's any other sort of uh, market band members that you can point to where it's like, oh, yeah, that dude's bringing in this this sort of heat for these uh, these sort of records or whatever. Well, it's funny because if anyone tries to take a too big of a stake in Finch, right. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like okay. everyone, everyone's a songwriter um, on some level and at different points and different albums and, you know, someone is more of the primary than not or whatever, but everything ends up going through all five people. And it really is democracy in that sense that like, you know, I could write a song and bring it to the band and it could, it could end up being, you know, a great song or I could write a song and bring it to the band and it ends up disappearing because, you know, it didn't work out or because one of the guys out of the four didn't like it. And so it doesn't make it, you know, it's a really, it's, it's, it's a difficult process in that, in that sense that there's no one principal songwriter in the band, but I think that it, it helps us, it helps us retain a level of quality that I think we're all looking for. It's, it really is a democracy. Yeah, Daniel, you're not answering my question, dude. <laughs> are you the heavy guy? Or are you the, no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that anyone's the heavy guy anymore. I mean, we're 34 years old, you know, but. <laughs> right. No, it's, it, that's true. There definitely comes a, comes a point where uh, all of the, uh, the hard edges get sort of uh, smoothed out from that perspective. And so, so uh, as it stands currently, um, you know, the, the, the future of Finch and like obviously what you guys, uh, not even so much like, oh, what tours do you have coming up? But it's like, um, is it one of those things that you guys plan on basically just be like, all right, I guess it feels time to do a new record. I guess it feels time to like sit in the room and write stuff. Are you guys kind of all actively being um, creative in that process and then bringing it to the table? I think that uh, I think we're in a pretty good it feels like we're in a pretty good um, rhythm right now. I think everyone is um, already wanting to and thinking about the next record and uh, everyone seems pretty motivated to build on the momentum we were able to generate over the last couple of years and feels like we're, we're kind of fighting for a livelihood. You know what I mean? And I don't mean monetarily. I mean that like we enjoy being in the band together. We enjoy touring and we enjoy making records. And we realize that there's not a lot of the 34 year old dudes out there that get a chance to make records and tour. And um, I think that we're all pretty motivated by you know, the luck that we've had over the so many years. And I think that we want to make good on it, you know? Yeah. So you feel, you feel, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, like hungry from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, we see an opportunity and to continue to grow. Um, we see the opportunity, uh, to be able to continue making records. And I don't think we want to waste it. That's sweet. Dude. Yeah, well, that's awesome, man. Well, I really, uh, I really appreciate the uh, the time and uh, addition, addition for me as uh, as long as you have, because I'm sure you haven't been to badgered uh, too much along these uh, tra- trains of thought of, mo- of yeah. new and old. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to uh, to talk about life rather than talk about you know you know yeah. the genres. Sick, sick riff. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so there you go. That was Daniel. Yeah, I just. I really love the stories of bands that exist in sort of this cultural vacuum where it's like they and, you know, sometimes maybe it's it's uh, mythologized than it actually is. But I think it's really cool that they were living out in a desert town, had very little to do. So they decided to start a band and it sounded like this weird mix of all this stuff that was happening but they didn't really know that it was happening. And then all of a sudden they were thrust into the limelight and drive-through records, 
boosted them up to a level of fame that they just didn't even know existed. But anyways, it was a very interesting story. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. So visit 100wordspodcast.com. Tom Richfield is the producer extraordinaire. So many great guests coming up. So sign up for the email newsletter on the right side of the page. And uh, yeah, you'll get a little sneak preview. So until next week, thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>